26th of July, the Pacific Update was held in Suva, Fiji, at the University of the South Pacific. The conference included a panel on labour mobility, in which presenters discussed new sectors and markets for expanding Pacific labour mobility, sending country governance, the PESA Plus Agreement and seasonal labour mobility in the region. Keep listening to learn more. Thanks, Satish. So I actually don't have a PowerPoint presentation, so I'll just be speaking uh, to the topic. And as Satish mentioned, my aim is really to, to change the way that you think about labour mobility to have a more expansive view of exactly what's potentially involved. So traditionally, I think when people think of labour mobility in the region, they think of the seasonal worker program and the RSC scheme in New Zealand, which essentially involves unskilled workers moving into those uh, countries temporarily to do agricultural unskilled work. So that seems to be the, the traditional way of seeing it. Now, labour mobility has been quite significant in the region. Uh, it has been a game changer, I think, in terms of the way that people look at aid projects for Pacific Island countries. Uh, it's been quite significant. I'll just give you a few uh, examples of some of the benefits. So for example, if you look at the SWP scheme in Australia from 2016 to 2017 over that season, the average Tongan employee saved and sent home 5,000 Australian dollars for a total amount of $13 million in savings for Tonga, which was equal to almost half of Australia's overseas development program in Tonga for that time period. To give another example, in New Zealand under the RSC scheme, for the first 10 years of its life from 2007 to 2017, there were almost uh, 70,000 visas which were given out. So you can see that it's quite significant in terms of the number of people it touches. Labour mobility is a new way of approaching development. It's unique, it's innovative. It's an issue where the Pacific Islands region is actually a world leader in terms of what we're doing. Even though labour market access is something which exists around the world, the way it's done in this region is actually quite different because labour market access agreements are not, are not uncommon under trade agreements or other arrangements. But what is particularly unique about the way we do it in this region is all of the infrastructure which is in place to support the recruitment and the labour sending. And this really is the unique innovative feature of what we have going on in labour mobility in the region. And it's something which I'll talk about a little bit more. And I think some of the other speakers will, will talk to this. So some of the issues uh, with respect to this infrastructure in the labour sending units, it includes databases uh, on people who have different skills and who are potentially available to work. The work ready pools which are in place support for some of the aspects of uh, going to work overseas, such as obtaining a passport, a visa, a police check, a medical check, and also matchmaking between the workers and the employers. So it's all of these aspects of the infrastructure which are quite unique. So what I would like to do in the main part of my presentation is actually just, I guess, uh, look at a few of the uh, conventional wisdom ideas which exist around labour mobility, and just challenge them and discuss them to see which ones are true and which ones actually require us to think uh, in a little bit more detail. So the first piece of conventional wisdom is that labour mobility is for unskilled workers. This is something which I already alluded to. 
And while this is true that a lot of the uh, labour mobility visas which have been given out so far have applied to unskilled workers, there is actually now a trend to expand it towards semi-skilled and skilled workers. So some of you may be familiar with the pilot programs which exist in New Zealand, for example, under the Canterbury Reconstruction Scheme, where 24 carpenters uh, were able to come and work in New Zealand. Uh, and Australia has similar programs in the tourism and some other sectors. So this is something which has been piloted up until now, uh, and it's in the process of being rolled out in a more mainstream way. So the thing that's quite interesting about these uh, semi-school programs is that uh, they've been restricted to certain areas within Australia and New Zealand. So for example, to Northern Australia and the Canterbury region. They've been restricted to a limited number of Pacific Island countries so far. Uh, and they're also restricted in terms of which sectors they apply to. Now, some of the potential areas where this can be expanded, and this is something which is going on at the moment, is by opening it up to more countries in the region, opening it up, opening it up to more sectors in Australia and New Zealand, and also opening it up to more geographical regions within Australia and New Zealand. So these are some of the things which are starting to happen, including through the new Pacific Labor Scheme in Australia, which has been launched recently and which they're in the process of uh, rolling out. So the first piece of conventional wisdom that I wanted to challenge was that labour mobility is just for unskilled workers. It's actually broader than that, but we're just in the process of starting to learn how it applies to the other types of workers. The second piece of conventional wisdom is that Pacific Island countries have a low skills base. Now, this is something which is partly true in the sense that there are a lot of unskilled workers in the region, uh, or especially youths, people who can't find jobs, and some of the economies in the region have trouble creating jobs uh, for, for all of their people who are leaving school. But at the same time, there are some skills in the region which are being underutilised. So some of the countries in the region are exporting semi-skilled or skilled workers, or they have an excess supply of these types of workers that they could potentially export. So some of the examples of this include in Tuvalu and Kiribati, it's well known that there are people with seafaring and mariner skills who currently aren't able to find uh, jobs. And even here in Fiji, there are certain schemes to export teachers to other countries within the region. So this notion that the Pacific Island countries only have uh, unskilled workers to export uh, is not entirely true. While there are a lot of skills gaps in the region, there are also quite a few areas where different countries have excess skills where they would uh, appreciate having opportunities overseas for those workers. So one of the key issues uh, in the region, which comes through in the labour market assessments, uh, is to get a sense of where those excess skills are. So much of the work on labour markets in the region has tended to focus on where are their skills gaps, where do the Pacific Island countries need to bring in labour, but some of those assessments are also starting to look at the issue of where are their excess skills, which these countries should consider trying to find opportunities for overseas. And this is something which is quite important in the context of skills development, which is another important issue which is being addressed under the new phase of uh, technical assistance from Australia and New Zealand to link the development of skills in the region to labour uh, mobility opportunities overseas. 
So the third uh, and final piece of conventional wisdom that I wanted to talk about is the notion that labour mobility is all about sending people from Pacific Island countries to Australia and New Zealand. And this is obviously the aspect of labour mobility which receives the most attention, but unfortunately it overlooks the fact that there's potential for intra-regional mobility. So there seems to be a, a bit of a feeling that when Pacific Island countries need labour, rather than looking within their own region, they look to the rest of the world. So this is something which the uh, Pacific Immigration Directors Conference, the PIDC, has done some work on in trying to get a sense of where are Pacific Island countries recruiting labour from. And one of the things which has come out of the, that work is that the main sources of labour coming into Pacific Island countries is the Philippines, China and Australia. So one of the key questions is, when Pacific Island countries have job opportunities that they need to fill from overseas, why are they turning to these other countries rather than looking within the region? Now, this may be linked to the skills that they, they need to bring in, uh, but if you look at the actual sectors where these countries are providing the most work permits for foreign workers, it includes construction, tourism and hospitality, so sectors where potentially they could be bringing those skills in from the region. So this is one of the, the key issues that arises with respect to, uh, to intra-regional labour mobility. So I guess the, the key points I wanted to make are that labour mobility is not just for unskilled workers, it has a role to play with respect to skilled and semi-skilled workers, that Australia and New Zealand are not the only destinations, uh, and that uh, intra-regional mobility is quite an important issue. And then the final one is, what are the barriers to intra-regional mobility? Is it the skills that when Pacific Island countries bring in a foreign worker, they can't find those skills from somewhere else in the region? Or are there other barriers which prevent that intra-regional mobility? So that would include things like information gaps or logistical difficulties. So if you look at some of the countries in the region who are bringing in labour from the Philippines, for example, they will have agents on the ground from the Philippines who are able to connect the employers to workers. So you might travel to some of the, the smaller island states in the region and find that if you, you go to a hotel, you're finding a lot of workers who are from the Philippines. Now the question is, could those countries bring in tourism workers from other Pacific Island countries? So one of the things that we're looking at at the moment at PIFs is some of these obstacles to intra-regional mobility, which are not necessarily linked to skills, but which are linked to information gaps uh, and also uh, the logistics of moving people around the region. And one of the, the questions that we've been addressing, especially with the smaller island states, is how can they tap in to the labour mobility work that's going on in the region so that they can actually recruit from within the region. So when we look at labour mobility, and we'll have some discussion a little bit later of our SWP, RSC, PACER Plus, you'll find that a number of our member countries in the region are not necessarily closely linked to this process. So you have the three northern Pacific countries who have access to the US labour market, are not included in the Australia and New Zealand schemes, and you also have the Cook Islands and UA who have access to the New Zealand and Australian labour markets. These countries are looking to bring in labour, and we're speaking to these countries at the moment about what is the best way 
to try to bring in labor from the rest of the region rather than going to, for example, the Philippines, China, and, and Australia. And uh, even though we're at the early stages of this work, one of the findings seems to be that the information and logistical barriers is a key barrier. It's not just that they can't find the skill set. So we've been talking to these governments about potentially linking into the labour mobility infrastructure which exists in the region. At the moment, the labour ministries in the Pacific Island sending countries are very well placed to support workers who are going overseas, but only to support those workers who are going to Australia and New Zealand. So one of the issues that we've been discussing with the smaller island states is could we use this infrastructure to also support workers who are going to the Cook Islands and Palau? So that if they need tourism workers, for example, rather than going through a local agent from an Asian country, they can actually tap into the LSU infrastructure in the region and try to bring in workers from Fiji or Samoa or somewhere else where that skills base exists. So those were the, the key things that I wanted to, to mention with respect to labour mobility uh, from the perspective of what's happening at the regional organisations. Thank you. Ben, thanks very much. Um, more or less one minute ahead of time. So it was excellent. Um, our next speaker, we'll leave the questions right at the, right at the end. We will have time for Q&A. So our next speaker is Stephen House, who's the director of the Development Policy Center at the ANU. He's also a professor of economics at ANU. He's going to be talking about sending country governance. Steve. Well, thank you, Satish, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, if you've been to one of the earlier updates, you might you probably heard me talk before about labour mobility. But um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, last year, um, I talked about what explained the greater success of the RSE, the New Zealand RSE, compared to the SWP, because the uh, RSE very quickly reached to about seven or eight thousand, whereas the SWP has taken a lot longer, and it's even now still smaller than the New Zealand scheme. Uh, this year, we are turning it around and focusing on the sending countries. So last year, we were looking at the receiving countries. This year, we're looking at sending countries and trying to explain the different, before, or different participation of the sending countries. And in particular, trying to see if there's a link to the way uh, the schemes are governed uh, in the sending country rather than in the receiving country. So I want, we've got, we got these three tasks, right? First, just explain how they govern the participation. That's a descriptive task, but it's quite complex and interesting. Um, and, you know, we're still learning, so I welcome any comments and corrections if we've got things wrong. Uh, second, explain why there, why there is this difference in participation, and then see if we find a link. Ideally, we'd like to explain the differences in participation in terms of the differences in governance. And so that's really our research question, and then we're going to look at the policy implications. But I do stress this is very preliminary research. It's, it's work in progress. So just there are a few graphs I'm going to run through quickly to stick to my time limit. But, you know, the, yes, the RSE is bigger than the SWP, but, you know, both are growing. And uh, together, you know, there are about uh, almost 16,000 uh, workers who went um, last year, and it'll be even, even more, uh, that is, even more in 17, 18. And, you know, if you go back 10 years, it would have been zero. So this is a major change, and it's certainly worthy of our attention. 
But I'm going to start with this point, so I'll start with the second task, right? just to show you the differences in participation, because they are huge. You know, they're, 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 they're much bigger than the difference between the RSE and the SWP. Um, so this is, I'm just putting them all together, both two schemes, and looking at the, the country participation. There are other countries that are eligible, like the compact countries, but they don't participate. And um, you can see, you know, if you look at it this way, there's huge differences from 6,000 in Vanuatu to 17 in Nauru. But actually, if you think that, if you think about the case in which the opportunities were equally spread across the Pacific, then each country would send the same, uh, have the same ratio of workers to population. So big countries would send more. And if we standardize by population, then the differences are even, are even larger, right? They're incredibly large. So on the one hand, you have Tonga. So in Tonga, we have, this is just in 2016, 17, 13% of Tongans aged between 20 and 45 went either to Australia or New Zealand. I mean, that's an incredible number. And then you think most of them are men. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's a fact. So in men, about a quarter, a quarter of all Tongan men between 20 and 45 went to Australia or New Zealand uh, for, to pick fruit or vegetables. Right? That's, that's a remarkable, that is transformational. Um, but on the other extreme, uh, look at Papua New Guinea. It's 0.0, and in fact, it's 0.01. So that means uh, Tonga is not just 10 times PNG, it's not just 100 times, it's 1,000 times. The participation rate's 1,000 times. So why do we get such extreme variations in participation across the sending countries? Just to give you a few more, um, you know, the facts, interesting facts that we're, we're trying to explain. You know, we have some countries growing strongly over time. So this is the cases of Tonga and Vanuatu. Uh, you see in Tonga the growth is sort of maxing out, whereas in Vanuatu, of course Vanuatu is a bigger country, it's still growing, um, whereas others haven't. So here's PNG, and you can see PNG, you know, it's kind of up some years, down other years, it doesn't, hasn't really been able to get the growth momentum. And even if we focus on the smaller countries, we leave out Tonga and Vanuatu, so we focus on the other countries where the numbers are in the hundreds rather than the thousands, you know, we do see a lot of difference from 2012, 13, when they were all about zero. You know, look at Timor-Leste, right? That's up to 700, growing very strongly. Samoa, you know, it's about 400, uh, down to the uh, groups in the 200, 100, uh, or virtually zero. So there is a lot of variation to explain. And I mean, the final thing that we probably won't get to is, you know, why some countries do better in some schemes than others. So Samoa does a lot better in New Zealand and Australia, so does uh, Solomon Islands. So. There's a lot to explain, and what might explain all this, apart from the main focus, which are these, how the schemes are governed. So there are lots of other things, right, that could explain it. And, you know, ideally we'd have a regression and we could try and look at which ones matter. Of course, we don't have enough observations for that, so it's more about thinking it through. But, of course, one thing is other employment opportunities at home. You know, Nauru, the economy's booming with the, all the Australian money flowing in because of the processing camp, so why would you go overseas? And then, as Ben mentioned, if you can go to the United States, why would you go to and go to the United States indefinitely? Why would you bother going on one of these seasonal worker schemes? So that's obviously one factor. Second, some economies are relatively further away, more expensive to get to, and don't have such a strong agricultural tradition. If we think about Tuvalu, Kiribati, Nauru, I think that explains why uh, those countries haven't participated very much. Other countries have internal challenges, right, or difficulties external to the whatever you do uh, around uh, labour set sending in horticulture. So think about PNG, it's internally uh, quite fragmented, uh, expensive, uh, there are law and order problems. So those are challenges that PNG is going to have to overcome. 
Uh, second, uh, sorry, not second, uh, second last, another one, the, on, you, you have these uh, first mover advantages, right? If you can get in first, you, that, that really helps you, right? And you can lock in that advantage. And you can get that first mover advantage through having a diaspora, uh, as a Tonga had in Australia, or you get World Bank support, as Vanuatu had to crack the New Zealand market. Um, and on the other hand, you can have a, a last mover disadvantage, which is what Fiji's had, because Fiji was excluded. Uh, until, because of the coup, uh, it was excluded until relatively recently. So all these factors are important, but you know, I want to argue that uh, governance also matters. And just to talk about the first mover advantage, it, it does seem to be strong. Right? Look at um, how these shares of the top three, Vanuatu, Tonga and Samoa, have stayed pretty stable. But on the other hand, uh, look at Australia, right, where you've really seen Tonga come down as a share and uh, Vanuatu go up. So changes can happen, and I think you know, we can't just say, well, we've left it too late. You know, there is room uh, for countries to grow, especially in Australia now, where the scheme uh, is uncapped. All right, so now go to the second uh, main topic, which are these differences in labour mobility governance across the Pacific. And first, I just want to explain what these differences are, and then try and do that linking between the, the differences in governance and the differences in participation. Uh, so what's the research base? As I said, it's a uh, work in progress, but in fact my um, co-author Richard Curtin, who sadly couldn't make it to this conference, uh, he's done all the hard work, <laughs> so I'm just uh, summarising it for him. But he has done these in-depth studies so far of PNG, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Samoa and Timor-Leste. And of course we're planning to do the other, the other countries uh, as soon as we can. And then we've also had a lot of discussions, just informal discussions with employers, government officials, just trying to understand uh, what is a very complex set of setups. Um, and as I said, I'm looking forward to get further feedback. So what do we mean by labour mobility governance? So we think of it as all the arrangements around the actual contract and work. Right? So it's, um, there are different ways you could divide it up, but what we've come up with is promotion. You need to promote the scheme so that people know about it. Uh, you know, potential workers, but word gets out pretty quickly. So it's really promoting it to potential employers, right? That's the key function. Then recruitment, right? The employer is never just given the worker, right? The, re the employer has to select the worker. Um, then, but also the government has to select it, right? The government, there's a clearance process. So you need both the employer and the government to select the worker. So we call one recruitment, one clearance. And then everything else we call facilitation. And this is a whole range of things from pre-departure briefing to helping with visa submissions or flight bookings, pastoral care, troubleshooting in Australia, uh, reintegration when they come back. And so we put all that under facilitation. So these are all things that surround the actual work that gets done under the scheme. And it's important, you know, governance doesn't mean government. You know, many of these tasks, especially, of course, selection by the employer, uh, have to be done by the private sector. Others can be delegated to the private sector. So it's important we're talking about governance arrangements, not government. All right, so let's go through these uh, one by one, promotion, recruitment, and then clearance and facilitation. In terms of promotion, you know, we've, as far as we've looked at it, Timor-Leste emerges as the most active country. It's the only country to have an in-country labor attache in Australia. Uh, that person's based in Canberra, and there's an assistant as well. And uh, their job is to go out and sell TMLS to employers, right? And also to help facilitate the hiring in country and do that troubleshooting when uh, problems emerge. And that seems to work really well. And you see TMLS has um, come up pretty fast, although it's not one of the biggest. Uh, it's also taking the initiative to organise an in-country conference to invite employers, again, to sort of promote and, and also to find out from employers what they want. 
And then uh, Tonga and Samoa have seasonal work coordinators uh, in New Zealand. So that's a, sort of the government direct promotion role. Uh, you can also have agents. Some countries have agents. They also can promote because they need to find employers right, to get their employees uh, work. Uh, so they, they do this job, but it can be potentially counterproductive. And you may know there's this issue in Vanuatu now where the scheme's been so successful, everyone wants to be an agent, right? Because it's seen as profitable, and they now have uh, some 90 agents. But as um, the former Labor Commissioner said, there are only 46 approved employers in Australia. Most New Zealand employers don't use agents, they, they employ directly. So you've got 90 people, you know, calling 46 or or others, they're trying to get on the list, right? You, it, can, it can be over the top. And the last thing we'd say is that promotion is, of course, it's an input, but it's also an outcome, right? If you do a good job, if your workers work well, then the farmers will be happy, then they'll recommend you to other farmers. So it's also an outcome of uh, the uh, impact that you have, and especially the impact you have at the start. Right? And Vanuatu, if you talk to them, they attribute their success to getting it right at the start, and that built their reputation in New Zealand, which then translated across to Australia. So that's promotion. Uh, recruitment, I guess this is, yeah, this is the one that's most complex, so I'll spend um, a bit more time on it. So all countries have this work-ready pool, right? That, and, and, and then you, if you're an employer, you can select workers from that. So the question is whether you have to use the work-ready pool, or you can just go outside and find your own workers. And this is where it varies, right? Timor-Leste and PNG, they really encourage you use the work-ready pool. Kiribati and Samoa, they also prefer the work-ready pool, but they're not in strict, not as strict. The other countries, is up to the employer uh, to choose. And then there's also a question of, if you go outside the work-ready pool, do you have licensed agents, or is it what they call direct recruitment, where the employer, perhaps using a returned worker, uh, actually does the recruitment, but there's no licensed agents, and practices differ there. And this is really our first strong finding. Those countries that give the work-ready pool a monopoly do worse. So if we look at why PNG and Timor uh, are far behind and Vanuatu and Tonga well ahead, you know, that's I think is an A, if not the key reason, right? Vanuatu and Tonga are just a lot more liberalized. And you can see the differences in policy here. PNG is basically saying, don't, you have to go through us. Tonga is saying, it's fine. Uh, Tonga says, we'd like you to use the work ready pool so we can spread it around, but, but it's up to you. And uh, this makes sense because we know the government may not run the work, pool ready, work ready pool efficiently, and if there's a choice somewhere else, if they don't do it efficiently, well, fine, you don't use it. But if that's the only choice and it's not working, you know, the country's uh, in real trouble. Uh, monopolies lead to corruption, and, you know, if you have to go through this channel, then you are going to increase the probability of corruption. But I think the fundamental point is that employers want workers they can trust, and, you know, the whole scheme runs on return workers. You know, that's something you can't underestimate the importance of that. And just to... Um, Illustrate that, if you look at the total number of visits under these two schemes, it's almost 100,000, right? which is a huge number. Right? But if you look at the total number of workers, it's, uh, it's less than 40, right? which is still big. Right? But it shows the prevalence of having uh, return workers. And we've got a few other statistics that I, I'll just show you this one. Right? If you ask employers, they prefer to do direct recruiting and, and using uh, return workers. Right? They're not so keen on that work-ready pool. So that would be the first lesson that we draw, but you still need the work-ready pool because some people want to use it, and also initially you don't have any networks. So to get you off the ground, you need that. And there one thing we found is that you want to get your initial workers from rural areas, right, and perhaps with some community uh, endorsement rather than uh, looking for educated urban workers who may not do 
uh, such a good job and therefore create a bad reputation for the country. Uh, finally, on clearance and facilitation, we just run those two together. I mean, however much you delegate to agents or returned workers, you can't avoid government involvement. Right? This cannot be a purely private sector phenomenon, just like trade can't be. Right? You've got to clear goods at the customs. Well, you, there's a clearance role, which is prescribed in the bilateral agreements these countries sign. And so if you look at what they sign up to for Australia, governments have to certify that the workers are of good character, they're fit and healthy, they're of a certain age, they're citizens, they, that they know their identity, uh, and that they're going to return. And so countries do have these rules that they can't, um, uh, that they, they, they can't uh, uh, delegate. Um, and so efficient administration is critical, right? There are some things the government has to do, and I think if we, it's interesting to compare Vanuatu and Solomon's, on paper, they look exactly the same, and so does Tonga and Samoa. So why have Vanuatu and Tonga done better than Solomon Islands and Samoa, respectively? I would say it's because they've, they've done this efficient uh, administration. Right? They, it's, a, it's a hassle, uh, a more vigorous, uh, more employer-friendly uh, environment. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm rushing a bit, but I know I'm coming to the end of my time, so let me wrap up. Um, you know, in the first part of the presentation, we just tried to show how the Pacific Island participation in the two schemes varies enormously across sending countries. And then we've argued that while sending country labor mobility governance arrangements are by no means the only factor responsible for this, uh, it does seem to be an important explanatory variable. We'd say there's no single model for guaranteed and sustained success, but countries can learn from each other. And I guess what we draw are really these two points, that governance matters both in the broad sense and the narrow sense. So in the broad sense, it matters what sort of structure you set up to uh, handle these uh, arrangements. And you know, what we take away from the evidence is that you need to provide, have a more liberal environment, provide scope for trusted intermediaries to emerge, avoid a monopoly situation. But then governance in the narrow sense is also important, right? What government actually does. And in this regard, efficient administration and leadership are key. In terms of advice we give to Pacific governments, and you know, this is very preliminary, uh, just to you know, expand on uh, or, or recapitulate some of the points we've made. Don't monopolize labor recruitment by forcing employers to draw from the work-ready pool. Fill the work-ready pool, because you do need one, with rural residents and using community selection. Resource and execute efficiently clearance and facilitation tasks, consider delegation where possible. Consider a receiving country presence, like Timor-Leste has in Australia, for both promotion and facilitation and then provide high-level bureaucratic and political leadership right, to really drive this as a key uh, economic opportunity. And then, of course, uh, we always want to give advice to the Australian government because the Australian government has put quite a lot of money into technical assistance to help uh, governments improve their uh, sending capacity. And first it was given to the World Bank, and then it was given to a managing contractor, Cardinal. I mean, from, we would say from a sort of cursory review, it doesn't seem to have had much impact. Right? Certainly still this major variation, all the countries have received help, and I think you could do with some more evaluation. Interestingly, more recently, the aid program has taken a more hands-on role, less traditional capacity building advisory, more let's get the job done. And there's a program called the Boost Program in the Solomon Islands, which is uh, meant to, has actually hired someone to go and find employers who want these workers and then go and find the workers. Uh, and a similar one in, similar assistance in Timor-Leste. Uh, you know, we would think the most effective approach is likely to be hands-on, but it's also going to be long-term. Both of these programs are still short-term and probably much longer-term assistance uh, is needed.
But in general, you know, we think the idea, Australia is very keen on aid for trade. Um, and in the Pacific, aid for trade, you know, has to mean aid for labor mobility, because labor mobility is such an important uh, foreign exchange earner. And I think just like we try to facilitate trade, we should be trying to facilitate uh, labor mobility. So it's just a question of how to do it uh, most effectively. Um, and then finally, of course, this is, there are a lot more research questions uh, to, to ask. Um, you know, there do seem to be some differences between Australia and New Zealand in how they operate. One has more labour hire companies, one has more actual farmers. That would be interesting to look at. We need to do more country studies. We need to talk more to employers. And then we need to, I guess we'll find this out over time, but also think about whether there are limits to growth. I showed you that uh, Tonga is sort of maxing out. And uh, Vanuatu, you know, seems to be running into some policy uh, issues with a very large number of um, agents and having some second thoughts about whether it wants uh, to have so many return workers. So how to sustain success, I think, is an emerging issue. And then a final specific question is whether you should have licensed agents rather than just informal intermediaries like returned workers. Uh, it's worked well in Vanuatu uh, when there were a smaller number, but doesn't seem to work well, say, in the Solomon Islands. So that's an interesting question. So a lot still to uh, study, and uh, as I said, look forward to your feedback. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Stephen. There's a lot of food for thought there. We have gone slightly over time, but um, I guess the topic is of a lot of interest. The next speaker is Alisi Kautoke Hulani. I don't know if I pronounced your name correctly, uh, Alisi. Uh, she is from the Tonga Ministry of Commerce, Consumer, Trade, Innovation and Labour. But today she's going to speak as a researcher, not as a public servant. So I just want to stress, she's going to speak as a researcher. She has done a PhD, so today she is going to have uh, an academic uh, head on. And Alice is going to talk about labour mobility in PESA+. Plus. So we have heard about RSC, SWP. This time, it's PESA Plus. Alice. Malalai, everyone. Um, as uh, our chair has mentioned, I'm going to talk today about labor mobility in the PESA Plus. Um, but first, I wanted to start off uh, by just um, establishing the importance of labor mobility to the growth imperative in the Pacific. Much of the hype around uh, labor PESA Plus um, when the negotiations began in 2009 was because of the pot potential contribution of labor mobility to this growth imperative. Um, there is growing consensus that the growth imperative for a region that has had stagnant low growth over decades uh, requires increasing trade integration. And it's important to understand that in um, giving importance to trade, the gains from international trade lie in the exploitation and differences. And the largest difference is the Pacific could potentially exploit is in labor mobility, particularly for low-skilled workers. The growth imperative for the Pacific is also an employment imperative. The Pacific's total population is growing faster than the, the world average, and due to um, uh, high um, fertility rates in the past, we now have a growing youth bulge that are increasingly unable to find employment in our domestic labor markets. Because of the current demographic and economic status of the region, obviously the, the growth imperative for the Pacific requires a, a mix of policies that should include labor mobility. Now, trade agreements play a very crucial role 
and enhancing the gains, uh, labelability gains for the Pacific. They can provide an important opportunity to increase labor market access, and they can provide an opportunity to improve policy cooperation between sending and receiving countries, particularly to address constraints. The Pacific has about three options available in terms of trade agreements. WTO, Pacific WTO members could um, negotiate non-preferential legally binding reforms under the WTO General Agreement on uh, Trade Services, where labor mobility is treated as mode four. Um, uh, Pacific island countries could also negotiate labor mobility um, concessions in regional trade agreements, such as in the case of Pacific Plus. And the Pacific could potentially benefit from unilateral initiatives that developed countries such as Australia and New Zealand have undertaken to liberalize their own labor markets, such as in the case of the SWP and RSE. Um, today, I'd just like to focus on the PESA Plus and the role of, of, of the PESA Plus as a, a regional trade agreement in increasing the gains uh, from labor mobility for the Pacific. The PESA Plus builds on the PACER agreement, the original PACER agreement, Pacific Agreement for Closer Economic Relations, that was ratified in 2001. This is a framework that was established essentially uh, with the objective of um, achieving gradual trade and economic integration of the economies of the former countries and Australia and New Zealand. So fundamentally, PACER Plus is in essence, supposed to improve and increase um, economic and trade integration within the region. And it was also expected to be the most welfare-enhancing trade agreement for the foreign for island countries, mainly because of the high volume of trade between uh, foreign island countries in Australia and New Zealand. The trade creation benefits was expected to outweigh the trade diversion effects. So from this perspective, Patient Plus was considered to be the most important free trade agreement for the region. But I'd like to just note here that from the, when the, the negotiations began in 2009, the Pacific Islands have always argued against a conventional free trade agreement. Um, due to the adjustment implications and the revenue implications, um, particularly for, for foreign island countries, which have heavily, heavily depended on tariffs for government revenue. What the, uh, the Pacific leaders, and from the beginning of um, the inception of, of PACER Plus negotiations, have pushed for is for labor mobility to be a priority in, in, uh, in the PACER Plus negotiations. In fact, it was included as one of the six uh, initial priorities uh, in 2009. And I've just uh, pulled out some ex excerpts from um, the Foreign Trade Minister's meetings outcomes document in 2013 and 2014 just to establish how important labor mobility was in terms of um, the PACER Plus negotiations. In terms of, of neg negotiating positions, uh, foreign island countries have established two main conditions. Well, they have established two main conditions for um, increasing their gains. One was to include in the PACER Plus agreement a, not, a binding um, labor mobility agreement that covers low-skilled and semi-skilled um, migration, labor migration. So essentially they were asking for uh, an agreement that exceeded Australia and New Zealand's um, commitments in the GATS. So uh, uh, an agreement that would go beyond WTO GATS mode four. Um, Australia and New Zealand opposed this position. Um, they argued that 
they would be challenged in the WTO uh, due to the most favored nation obligation to offer the same concessions to other WTO members. In support of the Pacific's position, um, there are uh, provisions within the GATS Article 4 which provides for the derogation from the NFN rule in the, in the case of regional trade agreements. There's also provisions within Article 5 for greater flexibilities, uh, particularly when um, developing countries and least developed countries are engaged in those regional trade agreements. Also in support of the position of the Pacific, um, there is evidence of developed countries who have um, gone beyond their gas uh, commitments in free trade agreements. One example is Canada, who, for example, in its free trade agreement with Colombia and Peru, have um, expanded the scope of their commitments to include about 50 semi-skilled uh, occupations. The second condition or negotiation position that the Pacific had was for a, labor, a binding labor mobility agreement to, to, to complement the, the SWP and RC existing seasonal worker program. Even though it wasn't explicitly stated by Australia and New Zealand, the notion was that their preference was for bilateral, for, for labor mobility, for low-skilled and semi-skilled to be treated under a bilateral labor arrangement. The benefits of a bilateral labor arrangement is that it is not subject to the MFN rule. And so therefore, they would have the flexibility to establish the scope, the conditions for liberability uh, access to their countries. The Pacific, however, in support of, of their position, uh, argued that, uh, yes, uh, BLAs are, are subject, uh, are more flexible in terms of, in, rel in relations to uh, regional trade agreements, but the conditions are usually just set by the receiving countries and exposing uh, sending countries to, to risks. There was also the notion of evidence-based research that um, bilateral labor agreements were heavily criticized for the exploitation of workers because of their non-binding nature. And so the Pacific was wanting um, SWP and RSE to exist not as a substitute for a binding labor mobility agreement, but as complementary to this binding agreement. So I'd like to take you now to the Pacific Plus text. So the agreement was signed on the 14th of June. The text reveals that the labor mobility provisions for low-skilled and semi-skilled workers are not covered in the agreement, but in a side arrangement titled the Arrangement of Labor Mobility. The binding agreement on temporary labor migration in the PACER Plus is in Chapter 8, a chapter called Movement of Natural Persons. This chapter, however, is limited to highly skilled professionals. So Australia and New Zealand, in terms of their labor mobility and temporary labor migration commitments in the PACER Plus, is very much consistent. They have maintained their commitments in the GATS mode four. Even with this situation, the research that I've undertaken uh, proposes that there was a fallback position that the Pacific could have exploited to still increase, to still push for increased um, labor mobility gains, even in the case of a, a side arrangement. So, in the next few slides, I'd like to, to just share some of those conditions. First off, the, as I had discussed in the previous slides, the, the primary objective was to increase labor mobility market access for low-skilled and semi-skilled workers. And so there was a need to lock in those commitments even in the side arrangement. 
Um, they could have done this by aligning the scope of their negotiations for the arrangement on labor mobility to the growth uh, sectors in, the Pacific, in Australia and New Zealand. Um, but obviously, in the arrangement, it, there is no clarification of the scope. There is no clarification of the skills and occupations that Australia and New Zealand are committed to liberalize. And so it is unclear whether there would be commitments from Australia and New Zealand to actually increase their mobility market access for the Pacific that would go beyond what is currently available to them in the existing seasonal worker programs. The only commitment relating to labor market access in the, the arrangement of labor mobility is the commitment relating to um, the Pacific Labor Mobility Annual Meeting, which is an, uh, an annual forum that would provide for the discussion of, um, to advance areas of, of a cooperation to address um, the progress to, towards achieving the objectives of the agreement, of the arrangement. Secondly, um, this is particularly for semi-skilled uh, labor, labor mobility, there was a need to include specific commitments to remove um, regular immigration barriers. The, the agreement does not address this issue. Second, there is, a, 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 thirdly, there is a need in terms of addressing these labor mobility um, immigration um, non-tariff barriers, particularly for semi-skilled workers. Um, it is uh, advocated that there is a need for improved regulatory cooperation frameworks, such as in the case of mutual recognition arrangements. The arrangement does recognize the importance of this, but the language um, in the arrangement is very much best endeavor. There are no solid commitments from Australia and New Zealand to ensure that there will be commitments to improve and establish such arrangements. Um, other research that I've undertaken on Thomas participation in the seasonal worker program has found that there are cases where there could be potential infringements of workers' rights and labor standards. Um, and so this is an area that could be covered in the arrangement. Um, developed, several developed countries have included labor um, standard provisions in free trade agreements, for example, the US, um, even in, in its um, free trade agreement with um, the Dominican Republic and Central American countries, um, the New Zealand and its free trade agreement with Thailand and, and China. But for, um, I just uh, put down a, a word of caution that perhaps the reciprocal nature of, um, the, of the basis plus and perhaps arrangement on labor mobility needs to be taken into consideration so as to avoid any unnecessary costs to the smaller Pacific Island countries. But um, the arrangement of labor mobility does not address this issue. Lastly, um, as uh, mentioned by Stephen in his presentation, there is a lot of work that needs to be done in sending countries. Yet, um, and this requires capacity as well as resources that the Pacific do not have. So there is an, an it is crucial that labor mobility is linked to target development assistance. The arrangement of labor mobility does not establish any linkage to development assistance. The discussions on funding and development assistance is in the development cooperation chapter, where Australia and New Zealand will provide 19 million Australian dollars and 7 million to assist the, 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 the four island parties in the implementation of the agreement. And then they will provide aid for trade. Labor mobility is not in the, the work program for PACER Plus. It's included as a, as a broad trade and investment issue that has to compete for aid for trade. So it will be subject to the aid for trade priorities of um, Pacific Island countries. 
So in conclusion, in just briefly discussing with you some of the findings from my research and my experience in the negotiations, the conditions, I guess it's fair to say that the conditions for foreign island countries to increase the labor mobility gains in the price of class negotiations, as well as the, on the arrangement on labor mobility, were mostly unmet. The role of the arrangement on labor mobility is therefore unclear. And the main gain from, for the Pacific from the arrangement on labor mobility is the Pacific Labor Mobility Annual Meeting. But it's still unclear what the Pacific is going to get out of this annual meeting. I would propose that um, in order for the Pacific to benefit from an annual meeting, there needs to be targeted um, objectives and um, a work program to address some of the issues that I had discussed. And in final, um, currently the, the progress in, of um, Pacer Plus into ratification is an issue that is currently being discussed. And I would propose that perhaps improvements in the labor mobility arrangements, if it is a, a, a non-binding arrangement as it is established, that perhaps this could be an incentive for the five foreign island countries that have not signed on to the agreement to actually consider signing, and for countries that have signed to move on to ratification. And so perhaps this could be an issue that, um, that could, should be further considered in the deliberations next week in Samoa, as well as in the um, bilateral deliberations with Australia and New Zealand. Malawi. Malo Alisi, um, thanks very much. Um, so now we are on to the final presentation. And this is going to be by Yvonne Underhill Sam. Um, uh, the paper is a joint one with Evelyn Masters. I'm told, Yvonne, I've done some research on you. You're the director in the institute. And uh, Evelyn is the migration and development specialist. So again, 15 minutes. Over to you guys. Um, kia ora tato katoto, and um, very nice to see people still here at the end of the day. Um, we, um, this is a joint paper with myself and Evelyn Masters, um, and it was funded by the New Zealand Institute for Pacific Research which is a DFAT-funded um, institute. So, MFAT. Did I say DFAT? Oh, big problem. Or maybe not. <laughs> there are a lot of similarities. Um, but yes, this is um, MFAT's uh, contribution to um, supporting some research. And this particular bit of research around labour markets was one of the very first ones that they were interested in. I want to say thank you very much to the previous speakers, because that provides a really nice framework, and in particular, to Alisi for taking us back to the kind of the very original understandings of where labor mobility has come from. And I think sometimes we forget, you know, that it's become a, um, a demand-driven approach to something that was initially a really important part of um, Pacific country mobility and, um, and solidarity around ways in which we could, um, we could move in the Pacific. So this uh, presentation is about how many winners makes a, how many wins make a winner, and I was just thinking about some of the numbers that I've heard recently uh, when Julie Bishop last week 
whenever it was, a couple of days ago, talked about or announced the next phase of the Australian program. She talked about um, coming to the Pacific 33 times. So then I started to think, how many times have I been in the Pacific? Because I'm from the Pacific. And I'm sure many of you in the room as well could count many more times that you've been in the Pacific. So, so that was a really interesting um, statistic or number to me, that one could count the number of times you've come into the Pacific. I think also, um, Stephen, I mean, I'm glad that you made the distinction between visits and workers, because again, there's another statistic there that we need to really break down when we start to think about how many people are involved versus how many um, visas are also um, um, involved. Um, so I just want to go through this particular project. I have a lot of slides. I'm going to settle on one as we go through. Um, and we'll just start off with the key points. Labour mobility is here to stay. But the question is, how can we ensure the gains in economic rights do not mean a loss of social, cultural and political rights? And in order to kind of address that, we um, are requiring and looking for a refined analytical framework that I think can capture better the diversity of implementation and impacts. And this points to the need for a lot more longitudinal research, which interrogates some of the different imperatives to get the number of wins and the number of losses, many of which we, um, we might mention today. So those are key takeaway points. Um, as I said, labour mobility is destined to, to be a critical development role in the Pacific. Decent work is becoming more um, widely spoken about. Kiribati now mentions in its labour migration programme the notion of decent work. So it's not just about labour mobility and numbers and workers. It is being moderated by the notion of decent work, which implies there has been a slippage to um, indecent work, or whatever you might call it. So I think that's really important. So decent work for all Pacific women and men, citizens, in their home countries. I mean, that's a, dist a distant possibility in our home countries to have that. So employment in other countries, of course, is going to be the reality. So what we did at first when we began this research was we, we took a look at the decade of um, research that has been gone, that has been undertaken on labour mobility. Um, and it was, it was quite a timely moment. There was an awful lot of research that had been published on this. Um, and so we just took that moment to have a look at it. There's more coming. Um, and I think it's important for us to keep a track of the considerable amount of research that is out there and begin to think a bit more carefully about the different kinds of research and what it's arguing for, because they do um, sit in a range of different ideological perspectives. Um, what we, um, one of the things that, we, that came out of that systematic literature review was that there was actually a relatively small number of quite well-known researchers who were involved in this because they were working at this interface of interagency relationships. Um, while a little bit more recent research, and I think Elise's paper was one of them, but a little bit more research has kind of begun to draw us to some of the complex social impacts around seasonal labour mobility, but still the policy dial is stuck on this triple win approach. So what we, um, we did, we began to do a little bit of field research in Kiribati, um, in, here in, in Suva, in Tonga, um, with sort of relationships that we had already developed, and I don't know whether Vijay is in the room, he was, I worked with Vijay here, Vijay's there, um, and Dick Bedford, who's worked um, often in Kiribati, 
and Evelyn Masters and I um, worked in Tonga. And we really just wanted to get a little bit, one, the first thing we wanted to do was to share the literature review that we'd done and demonstrate the range of different kinds of evidence that was coming out of that. Um, and then we, um, we spoke to a lot of people. So I think one of the key things we wanted to sort of highlight was that even in a triple win approach, we don't get an opportunity to really dig down onto the, onto the losses that are also occurring. So we wanted to kind of raise that, and it was coming up with the research. And in particular, you know, those people who are familiar with the research on seafarers in Kiribati, we now have a generation of research that speaks to the impact of what the seafarer communities and that practice of seafaring in Kiribati, the actual impact that that has had on communities and families in Kiribati. So we are well positioned to understand the, um, the wins and the losses of this long-term work for, um, for employment. Okay. So one of the, some of the overarching findings that we came through was that it was about the importance of strategically managing both the mitigation of the negative social and economic impacts of which we were finding, as well as the enhancement of both the economic and social incomes. And these need to be disaggregated by, at the very least, gender. And that was a very clear thing that came out. Many people spoke about women not being involved in the... Um, labour mobility schemes. And so while they may not be involved in the travelling, they're absolutely involved in the schemes because they're at home doing a lot of other things. So it does require us to think a little bit more differently and to at least have a disaggregation by gender. So we wanted to kind of have a little play around with the Triple Wins framework, um, and that's really what I want to focus on a little bit today. Um, because we want to look at that triple wins framework and to redevelop it a little bit more to, um, to identify the different imperatives, and, and the previous speakers have mentioned some of those imperatives, but to also add another dimension, which I think is really important, and that is in the area of those ancillary services. That's the agents, you know, that's the people who provide the accommodation or the buses that take people from one small place to another. So already, instead of just the three... <coughs> Um, components, I think we can open it up to another component, and then I want to do is to look across the different kind of imperatives that help us understand a little bit more about where we're going and um, how we can move in terms of both mitigation and enhancing. So this is the table that, I'm not sure how clear you can see this, but you can see down the side, we've got the, the who wins, those in the country of origin, and people are very familiar with this triple win framework. But what we've just done is, if we go down, I'm going to take another slide. The three, the winners are the country of origin, the country of destination, the seasonal worker, and the ancillary services. And then across the top, we've got four different imperatives. The economic imperative that um, was spoken clearly about by Alisi. The demographic imperative, which also was mentioned. I think the political imperative was also really important. And again, Alisi mentioned that. And the development imperative. Um, which has also been mentioned throughout. So what we've just done here in this simple table is to try and identify what some of those imperatives are. So we can take any one of those boxes and look at both the wins and the losses of those. Um, for instance, the economic imperative for the country of origin, of course we ha have seen enhanced remittances which really are improving national income and arguably in many places they've really improved the lives of people who've actually got money in their hand. But there are also the losses, which is the losses that are experienced by the families and the communities in the home villages, 
when um, families are away. Not just when they're away, it's also when families return, when seasonal workers return. And there, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's anecdotal evidence and there's some interesting research that's talked about the tensions, of course, that return and workers find that the money is not spent in the way it was supposed to have spent. You know, once you um, add that dimension of uncertainty, um, a lot of different things were happening in families and communities. The demographic imperative, for sure, it eases the strain of youth bulge. We've talked about that. Um, it provides an opportunity for offshore training of citizens, but it also means there's a real loss of able-bodied men and women for the gardening, the building, and the care work, in particular care work that happens in, um, in families. Um, we can go through the political imperative, I think importantly here, and I'm really happy to be following Elise on this one, but the political imperative was in terms of countries of origins, was it provided? A, it was a provision as a key leverage point in PACER Plus negotiations, and I think um, Alessi has mentioned that really clearly. But the downside of that is it still relies on, for many Pacific countries, there's a reliance on New Zealand and Australia as donors. So while we want that imperative, while we want that leverage, we're still um, in a situation in, um, of, of working with Australia and New Zealand. And the development imperative, obviously the key one, is that it's got the spread effect of having remittances and it eases pressure on government services. But also one could arguably say there's a loss in terms of the increase in the consumption of modern goods um, and the ways in which they're moving into um, places and communities and the upkeep of those and the maintenance of those and the you know, the how, um, how, you, how you get rid of some of the things that no longer work for a while. So I just, I don't know how much longer I've got, um, three minutes, I'm just gonna wrap it up here to say that we've found this particular um, reframing of the analytic of losses and imperatives, uh, wins and losses, a useful way to think about um, the three particular countries that we went through. What was also really interesting in the three visits that we had was each had its own political um, economic policy structures. So Stephen, in terms of the kind of the, the governance structures, each of those was very different. Between Kiribati with a new prime minister, an imperative to make himself different to the previous prime minister, a commitment to regional development, um, with Tonga, and we were there in Tonga just before Geisha, and that is a real reality check again. You can do as much as you like with all the constraints that we have in our governments, and then you'll have a, um, you'll have a, a major cyclone. Um, and in Fiji, of course, I mean, Fiji has this decree, its labour market decree or its labour employment decree, which um, has a very clear steps of how you're going to develop your labour, um, how you're going to provide the employment opportunities um, in Fiji. And that includes, of course, in Fiji, the fact that you have highly skilled workers as well moving through um, globally um, as sports stars, as security guards, etc. So each of those three countries highlighted very different political economic positions in which, which we really need to understand when we think about how labour mobility fits within their development context. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.